morning and uh, see what the exact words were, but it did catch my attention. Uh, I'd like to look into that and see what it is that they're planning on doing. Before we get to the scripture, I'll give you a little update on the, the History Channel situation. Uh, they've been filming uh, all week up at near Three Lakes. They weren't able to work anything out with Best Friends, who now owns that. Uh, and the executive director told me that, well, we're we're okay with them. We're not on a bad terms, but it just didn't work out that we could film there. So they went to what's called Cave Lakes at a, on a private ranch, and they're doing their diving and everything there instead. But then I heard that they were uh, interviewing the man who used to own this ranch that they're filming on. And he doesn't know anything. And in fact, none of them know anything. And I had a conversation with the executive director uh, about a week ago. And... uh, We were talking about history, and he says, well, I said something about, is he after mystery or history? And uh, he says, well, I know what turns TV sets on. It's mystery. He says, nobody will watch if we just do history. And this little light went off in my head when he said that. But he says, I like the expression. That sounds good. I might use that. I think I told you this. Uh, history and mystery. But uh, Ross was willing to talk with them when they first approached us. And then he got skeptical. And then he thought, well, if they really want to have a foundation of truth and are looking for the real thing as opposed to just more mystery... He says, uh, I'll talk to them. And that was supposed to be set up, but they got busy and it didn't happen. And then today, he said, I'm not talking to them. Uh, He says, it's obvious from the way they're going about this that they're just after a mystery. Uh, Because I told them, see, the Mormons have this story around that somebody drilled a well on top of, above the lakes, back went underneath in the cave there, and that they could see treasure looking down the well hole. And this guy was supposed to have died of a heart attack that night because he had found the Aztec treasures. Well, Ross knew all these people, and it was his nephew or his cousin that drilled the well. And he looked down the well, and he said, there's nothing down there. So they started this story that they had seen it. And then there have been multiple divers and different people looking for those treasures ever since. And Ross said, I know the guy that supposedly had the heart attack. He had had two heart attacks before that and apparently didn't die immediately after. I don't know the whole story on that or I didn't quite catch what he said. But the story, at at any rate, is a bunch of fairy tales and lies, and uh, they're perpetuating this mystery. 
so here they are ad- talking to the guy who owned Three Lakes before Best Friends got it, getting his deal on it. So they didn't get to dive at Three Lakes at all, but they're still telling the story. And it'll be interesting. I'd like to see this thing and see how they tell this story and put it together about Three Lakes, because that's supposed to be the spot, without actually having been there. So that, that kind of could be interesting, how they cobble it together and don't say anything but give a mystery. And Ross told me today, he, he kind of wanted me to get all over him. Uh, I didn't, but I... I tried to be a, a little diplomatic about it, but he told me, just tell them, I know ten times what they do, and they have nothing but a bunch of lies that they're spreading around, and if they want the truth, and they want a foundation of what's really going on, they better come talk to me. So I texted the fellow that I've been talking to most of the time, and and told him that, uh, since they were approaching it more from the mystery rather than the history side, that uh, he had decided that at this time he didn't want to talk to them, uh, but I would be willing to work with them as doing whatever uh, to get better acquainted. And then if there was more dialogue and more possibilities of something in the future, then we'd be better acquainted and just kind of passed it off. So we'll see where it goes from there. I didn't want to get too nasty with them. They've got my UTV. <clears throat> at any rate, it doesn't look like anything's going to happen with them at this point. But it, it, it doesn't escape me that uh, God might have some use for them in the future when the time is right. And just having the phone number and the text and having had some dialogue both with the executive director and this Jim Palmer that I've been talking mostly with, uh, we've got an end there or a possibility if it's needed. They'll know who's calling. Or if we do some things and they think they want to be involved, and I open that door. I said, when you get out of the point, you want the real story uh, about this situation, get in touch. And when you're ready for the real story, then we'll talk. Ross said, I can give them 20 things today that they could do a mystery on. And he could. Just throw out this, that, and the other thing and say, now go do your research. And uh, that could work. So neither he nor I feel it's time really to give them the whole story yet. Uh, Not only that, we can prove from a lot of information uh, a lot of truth. But at the same time, we can't say, hey, here's proof of all this. Because when you do that, I think it's time for it to go around the world. And I think God is going to make it obvious when that time has come. And it's time to go all out on this thing. So rather than go part way, uh, what helps me put the brakes on a little bit on it is that these people could very easily be Masons. Uh, they could be uh, Jewish uh, Zionists. Uh, they could be tied in with the Rothschilds. When you get that high in the entertainment world, it's pretty well controlled by Zionist Jews. So 
you don't know just what to do because if you give them a little bit where they think you think it's here, uh, they may have people coming around pretty quick investigating from the standpoint of wanting to get it involved with the New World Order. And uh, I'd rather wait until God shows now is the time. And then, if they are to be involved, fine. But uh, we'll just we'll just put that one on the back burner and see where it goes from here. At least they do know that there's somebody in the area who claims to have the true story. That much they know. <clears throat> well, I made a vain attempt to finish off Acts last time we had a study on it. And got down to chapter 28, the last one. So we'll uh, examine this, and hopefully I can get through one chapter tonight, and we can finish this up and then go to something else. But in uh, chapter 27, uh, just a brief review, we know that Paul was on his way to Rome as a prisoner, and they had a shipwreck, and uh, went through all kinds of difficulties there, even in getting to shore, because the ship was breaking up. And Paul had told them that uh, if they would do what he said, that everything would be fine and nobody would be lost. And sure enough, they weren't. But it was a place where two tides were coming together, and that can be pretty tumultuous water. Uh, and... Uh, they all made it to shore either swimming or floating on something. So God was there and God was with them. And obviously God wanted Paul to be in Rome, not just to die, but to be there for some of his purposes that would last actually quite a while. So let's get into chapter 28 then. Uh, after the soldiers had counseled to kill all the prisoners, uh, they were given relief and weren't killed and made it all safe to land. And then in 28, and when they were escaped, then they knew that the island was called Melita. They had been in that big storm, uh, drifting, not knowing in the dark and in the clouds where they were going. So they didn't have modern equipment to tell them uh, exactly where they were. They couldn't say, Siri, direct me to wherever. Uh, they were just in the dark and in the waves and being pushed around. So they found out where they had landed. And the barbarous people <clears throat> showed no, us no little kindness. Uh, for they kindled a fire and received us every one because of the present rain and because of the cold. That's interesting, people who did not know them, uh, didn't know whether they would be the kind that should be taken care of or whether they would come in and, and try to hurt them or what. But, uh, when people are shipwrecked, and in that sense pretty much helpless, uh, perhaps even barbarous people would help them. You know, you can always put them in the pot and, and eat them later. You don't have to kill them right off. But they were kind. And took care of them, warmed them up. And when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks, interesting there that uh, Paul was a prisoner. There were lots of prisoners. Uh, there were a lot of soldiers. 
And there were these barbarous people. And uh, any of them could have been out gathering wood for the fire. But Paul took it upon himself to go gather wood, which so shows his spirit of service, his willingness to get in and help and work and do. Uh, I think it's a very important example here uh, of Paul doing that. We concentrate on what happened, I think, sometimes more than uh, the act of service that he was doing when something did happen. But in any case, as he gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, there came a viper out of the heat and fastened on his hand. Uh, I guess the snake got heated up pretty fast as he threw those sticks on, and he felt the fire, and Paul's hand hadn't even come back yet, and uh, it picked his hand out instead of a stick to bite. And when the barbarians saw the venomous beast hang on his hand, it didn't just bite and turn loose, sunk the fangs in, and held on. They said among themselves, No doubt this man is a murderer, whom though he has escaped the sea, yet vengeance suffers not to live. Most people who were not part of a, let's say, civilized society, uh, were very superstitious people. So they figured from their superstitions that if this must be a truly bad man, <laughs> if, the, if, if the sea didn't get him, then something was going to because he had to be a murderer to have both those things happen. So he shook off the beast into the fire and felt no harm. Now here's where we have several groups of people today and agencies who would scream bloody murder here, uh, him killing that snake. You know, you don't dare kill a snake. He shook it off in the fire. Best friends would go absolutely bananas over this. Uh, maybe they don't even read the Bible. I doubt if they do, if you get an example like this in here. They, you know, they do all through the Bible as killing of animals, isn't there? Sacrifices, food, all kinds of stuff. I guess there are many, many different reasons different people don't read the Bible. <laughs> you just pick one. Anyway, he felt no harm, howbeit they looked when he should have swollen or fallen down dead suddenly. But after they had looked a great while and saw no harm, saw no harm come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. This man went from the worst kind of human being, a murderer, to God in about 15, 20, 30 minutes or an hour. They watched him for a long time, apparently. You know, there are snakes on this earth, Australia, Africa, Southeast Asia, uh, South America, that can kill you in just minutes, very, very quickly. We are blessed in this nation to only have four poisonous snakes at all, and often you do not die from their bite. You can get pretty sick and you can swell up, but you... Uh, very frequently can survive a, a rattlesnake or a cottonmouth or a copperhead bite 
coral snakes are more poisonous, but they don't have fangs, and uh, they have to chew on you in order to inject the venom. And there are people who have coral snakes for pets, even though they're deadly venomous. Um, I wouldn't want my pet snake in bed with me. I might lay on him, and he might decide to chew on me or something. But at any rate, he's not that dangerous to people. I don't know that I've ever heard of anybody dying of a coral snake bite. I might have over the years read one somewhere, but there aren't any out here. And there are no copperheads here and no cottonmouths here. The only thing we have is a rattlesnake, and he generally tries to get away from you. So they have aggressive snakes. Well, the black mamba in South Africa uh, can stand up as high as seven feet on his tail. If they're 10, 12 feet long, he can raise up seven feet. And uh, a lot of people who work in the cane beds over there are killed by those mambas. And it's very, very quickly you go down, just minutes. They even had them rise up and people going by in a pickup and strike them and, and uh, bite them over the pickup rail. So I think God blessed us in this country when you go to the other continents and have such venomous creatures around. Uh, cobras spitting at you, hit you in the eyes. I can kill you, blind you. Uh, we had a woman in the church, Tosha Hugenhout, over in Namibia, who had been uh, spit. I think she'd had one spit in her eyes twice in her life, and she had not gone blind yet. But she had some antidote. I don't remember now what, but uh, she had survived it. But we're blessed here, and Western Europe as well. They don't have the real nasty critters in Western Europe, mostly where Israel has been. So God kind of gave Israel some blessings in a way that other continents and peoples have not had. So anyway, they looked at this at Paul for quite a great while and decided, nope, he must be God. Now there's another superstition. <laughs> you're, either, you're either really bad or you're really good, and in his case there was no in-between. In the same quarters, well, that had to be an, it's just a blessing and a, an intervention by God is what that was. Uh, remember it said that if they give you something poisonous, or I think it even mentions a, a, a serpent, or get bit by a serpent, you would have no harm. And in this case, that was so. I remember a case in Fort Pierce, Florida one time, came to a house, New letter, never heard from this guy or anything before. And then he invited my wife and I in. Uh, she was with me at that day visiting. And and uh, we hadn't been there very long until he decided to tell us that he had just recently gotten out of prison and that uh, he was a bad man. Uh, he had been in for murder. So he, he let us know that he was a murderer and then in a little bit he asked us, we'd like some apple juice. <laughs> and I, I thought about it, and I said, yeah, I'll have an apple juice. You want one? Yeah, I'll have one too. So uh, he probably didn't doctor it, but there was that feeling there. And I know that he had to have known that scripture the way he did it. 
I'm a murderer. Would you like some juice to drink? I don't want to tempt God, but on the other hand, I didn't want to just say, oh, no, I'm afraid I might die. Anyway. In the same quarters were possessions of the chief man of the island, whose name was Publius. That doesn't sound too barbaric. Sounds more like a Roman to me, but uh, whatever. Who received us and lodged us three days courteously. Opened the B&B right on the spot. Took care of them for three days. And it came to pass that the father of Publius lay sick of a fever and of a bloody flux. COVID-19 to whom Paul entered in and prayed and laid his hands on him and healed him. Now, Paul didn't heal him, but God used Paul as uh, the emissary to do the healing. And that's the way he said we are to do it, is to anoint with oil and pray a prayer of faith and that God will heal the sick. So he is given that responsibility to the ministry to do, Uh, partly that we might look to that office that God created for the purposes which he created it. And in this case, Paul did, laid his hands on him. I don't know whether he even had any oil or not. You know, you kind of do at the time what you have to do with. (laughs) Uh, At least he did the laying on of hands and praying, whether he had oil or not. And there's there's been a time or two I've done that when it just simply circumstances arose and there was no oil to be had, so I just laid hands on them and and asked God to heal, and I've seen it happen. There are other times when I felt I need to be sure that I do this right, and I I excused myself and went to a store and bought some oil because I wanted to do it as right as possible, and, and I could do that. But I, I remember a Mexican fellow uh, in, well, a, a human being, didn't matter whether he was white, black, yellow, or green, or Mexican, I just remembering who it was. Uh, but I'd never seen him before, and he couldn't talk to me. I've told you, I think, this story before. Uh, he just talked gibberish, like a Pentecostal in the middle of a service. And somehow he told me he wanted me to lay my hands on him. I got, I don't know whether he did it with with his hands, body language, or partly by word. I understood that's what he wanted. So I laid hands on his head, and he talked normally. I didn't have any oil. It was obvious something was wrong with him, so I just laid hands on his head, and he could talk normally. And we talked for a while like that, and I thought, well, he's talking fine now, so I removed my hands, and he started talking gibberish again. And I I think I put them back on another time or two and visited with him some more. Uh, I don't recall that I ever saw him again because he obviously had some serious problems, and God caused him to be able to speak uh, 
just from that. I had nothing to do with it. (laughs) Uh, Just touched his head. But God did it. For whatever reasons, he wanted that man to be able to communicate, and he made it possible for it to happen. So here, uh, Paul on his way to Rome as a prisoner, and he found a sick person. Sometimes we may have a little trouble with somebody, let's say, outside the church, and somebody will say, will you pray for my aunt or my uncle or somebody that doesn't really know God, doesn't know anything about God, uh, and yet they want you to pray. And I've wrestled with that one a little bit over the years. How do you pray for that person? What do you say to God? Uh, them And they're not there either. They're somewhere else. Uh, sometimes it's a little difficult to know how to handle it, what to say. And yet... Christ healed all kinds of people while he was on the earth that were totally unconverted and just looked to him for healing. So he has shown his willingness to do that. Uh, whether they pray the prayer of faith or not, faith is trust. Faith is belief. And if someone requests prayer then there has to be some level of belief that that could do some good. And it may be a fairly strong feeling, or it may be not so strong. I don't know. God has to look at all that and determine whether he wants to intervene and heal somebody under which circumstances. And here, uh, there was more than one miracle done. A, everybody got saved to shore. Now, God could have done a great miracle had he so chosen. He could have stopped the wind. He could have stopped the rain. He could have caused the ship not to go aground. But he didn't. It would have been just as easy, maybe easier, to do it that way. But he chose to let them be shipwrecked to save everybody, to heal Paul of a been of a snake bite, and now to heal somebody on the island who didn't know God from a weather balloon uh, for his purposes. Now Paul was headed for Rome, to Rome. Let's analyze this just for a moment. Uh, ultimately to be killed, but he was going to be preaching there for at least two years, as we'll see later in the chapter. Uh, With him were all these soldiers of Rome, all these seamen, and whoever else, there may have been other passengers aboard the ship, I don't know. But they were going to Rome. And here was Paul coming, representing God and God's church. And these people, when they got to shore, do you think they wouldn't tell these stories about what had happened on that voyage? Oh, they'd have been in every house and every bar and every public square or whatever because it was an unusual voyage. And some unusual things had happened. So they would get to Rome and spread that abroad. 
which would then give Paul an audience, and God wanted Paul to have an audience. So the wind stopped, and they'd been safe and gotten on to Rome, there'd have been no story to tell. There'd have been nothing to bring Paul in as someone who was, in their eyes, a god, a man of God, a healer, a man to whom snakes could not kill, he got to Rome with these stories fanning out in front of him as he got there. So I'm sure that helped fulfill some of God's purposes. You know, we could go through trouble. If you and I were on a shipwreck like this and then got snake bit and on and on, what would we be thinking? Would we be saying, God is with us on this trip. I just know God is with us on this trip. Maybe. But maybe you'd also be having some thoughts about, where's God? He was there. He was there all the way. But they sure went through a lot of trouble. So just because you're having trouble doesn't mean God isn't there. You, you, you can't use that logic. And we tend to do it with somebody. Oh, boy, he must be bad. He's, look at what's happening to him. God's Oh, God's punishing him. Maybe, maybe not. We can't make that judgment just based on some circumstances we see. That's what the barbarians did. He must be a murderer. The gods are against him. Oops, no, he must be a god. Wow. Now God was working out some things here. So when this was done, others also which had diseases in the island came and were healed. Now that made an even bigger story, see, because Publius' father could have got well on his own, you know. But when all these people are there as witnesses and people coming from all over the island and being healed by Paul laying hands on them, the story got bigger. This is like Acts 2 a little bit. The story got bigger. And when it got to Rome, because there's no indication here that any of these natives, these barbarians, uh, were converted. He wasn't there preaching to them. He was there to preach at Rome, is what God had in mind. Although they did stay there on the island, and I'm sure Paul still preached Christ to them for the time that he was there for about three months. So they came from all over the island, were healed, who also honored us with many honors. Well, they would have been. You know, they see all their the sick healed, their children, their wives, their husbands, Grandparents being healed, and oh, you would, there would be honor. They would have been, Paul would have been highly respected for what God was doing through him. And when we departed, they laded us with such things as were necessary. They were willing to give to them, just like the Mitzrayimites were ready to give to the Israelites. I think they had a little different attitude. The Egyptians were Please go. Take everything. Just go. And these people, though, 
honored them and were giving them gifts out of respect and honor as opposed to just a way to get rid of them. There's the difference. Anyway, and after three months, we departed in a ship of Alexandria, which had wintered in the isle, whose sign was Castor and Polyx. Whatever that means, I don't know their sign. I, I don't think that's necessarily a satanic ritual part of it, but maybe where the ship was chartered or who owned it or uh, hard to say exactly what that means. So here was a ship that made it safely to port on the same island, and they, they waited the weather out for three months before they sailed. And meantime, they knew of, of these guys on the island. And landing at Syracuse, we tarried there three days. Told you this was in the U.S. That's in New York. And from there, we fetched a compass and came to uh, Regium. And after one day, the south wind blew, and we came the next day to... I'm having trouble reading this. Putioli, where we found brethren and were desired to tarry with them seven days, and so we went toward Rome. Now that's interesting right there that the story had gotten around to this ship that they hitched a ride on, obviously, and they'd made some arrangement to go on the ship to Rome with them. And normally, if you took someone on like that, you'd want to get to Rome and get them unloaded as soon as possible. But the stories that had gone on, I think, bears out that there was some honor going to be given to Paul, and it would help his case in Rome. Because these people aboard the ship, or in charge of the ship, stayed there seven days so Paul could visit with the brethren. Now that's unusual just in itself. Did you ever get on a Greyhound bus years ago and tell the driver, I've got some church members here, I'd like to go see before we go on, and the driver would wait for a couple, three days till you got back. I don't think so. And sailing vessels were the same way. So they allowed them to stay and visit seven days. And so we went toward Rome. And from there, when the brethren heard of us, they came to meet us as far as uh, Appii, Appii Forum, and the three taverns. And when Paul saw, he thanked God and took courage. So that shows right there that Paul was moving at a certain speed to get where he was headed with the soldiers. But these people who had been on board the ship spread it around the harbor, and then it went far and wide, and here were people who knew of him, Brethren who heard, Paul's here. They heard people had been healing, been being healed. They heard there had been snake bitten, there had been a shipwreck. All kinds of stories went around. And how did the brethren know for sure that it was Paul? Well, I suppose those people who were spreading the stories told them, this is Paul, 
the apostle of the church of God, that little sect over there. Uh, so the brethren recognized who it was that was coming. I don't know what three taverns had to do with it. Maybe that's maybe that's not beer bars. Maybe that's uh, lodging places. Uh, whom when Paul saw, he thanked God and took courage. Now, he was going there to be tried for life and death. And I'm sure this weighed on him throughout this whole voyage in the three months on Miletus and and on board, he knew he was headed for a death sentence, very possibly. So he took courage when he saw the brethren. And when we came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard. But Paul was suffered to dwell by himself with a soldier that kept him. He must have made quite an impression on the centurion and the soldiers that were guarding him because all the other prisoners were put over there and Paul was allowed to be by himself with a soldier. Just one soldier to kind of keep watch on him and be sure everything was okay. So there was a level of trust there that centurion obviously had passed on to whatever rank was in Rome that normally would take care of soldiers, or I mean of prisoners. That reminds me of the story of Joseph who went to prison and uh, he served and helped and gave and and uh, encouraged the other prisoners instead of sitting in the corner with a can of worms and eating, he uh, decided he would be of use. So he served the other prisoners earned their respect, earned the respect of the guards, and pretty soon he was in charge, basically in charge of the prison. And when God turned him loose, there was a good report. So that's how he got to, uh, what's his name's place where he had a wife that he got troubled over later. Uh, yeah, Potiphar. I was trying to mix it with Pilate and it wasn't working. So wherever God's people are, we have examples that even in prison, you don't sit there and say, oh, woe is me, God has forsaken me. You realize that God has a reason for you being there in prison. I mean, he can count your hair through the bars on the gate. Uh, So he knows you're there, and he knows what you're doing there. And he has some kind of plan or purpose for somebody to learn something. And it might not even be you. It might be the guards. It might be whoever. But he has a purpose in dealing with. And it came to pass that after three days, Paul called the chief of the Jews together And when they were come together, he said to them, Men and brethren, though I have committed nothing against the people or customs of our fathers, yet was I delivered prisoner from Jerusalem to the hands of the Romans. Now it had been the leaders of the Jews where he was that had gotten him in trouble in the first place. 
So notice that Paul takes the issue on directly. When he gets to Rome, has three days to rest up and get his bearings and and so on, he called the Jews, who were enemies of the church, enemies of Christ, and ultimately enemies of God. Please come, let's talk. So he tells them the story. Who, when they had examined me, would have let me go because there was no cause of death in me. I hadn't done anything, but I had all these accusations. Do you think there's a reason God says do not bear false witness? Don't be a lying witness? Well, that's all that Paul had had was lying witnesses. They didn't have any truth, didn't have anything to accuse of, except they wanted him gone. And that's what they used. But when the Jews spoke against it, I was constrained to appeal to Caesar. Not that I had anything to accuse my nation of. I didn't done anything wrong. I wasn't going to accuse the Jews. That was my nation. I was just appealing to Caesar because these guys were ready to kill me over nothing. For this cause, therefore, have I called for you to see you and to speak with you because that for the hope of Israel I am bound is chain. The only reason he was in chains was for the hope of Israel. Now, what did that mean? The Pharisees, Sadducees, the Essenes, the physical people of Israel, unconverted, had hope in the promises of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob before God. And though they denied Christ, they still had hope of blessings from the Father. So that was the hope of Israel. Now, Paul had an additional hope added to that. With the New Covenant, he had the hope of the spiritual Israelite being made God. So he had a double hope. They had one hope, he had two. And he says, that's the hope that put me here. Because the Pharisees thought they were doing God a favor by getting Paul killed. So he's explaining it wasn't really that way. And they said to him, we neither received letters out of Judea concerning you, neither any of the brethren that came showed or or spoke any harm of you. Now whether they'd come in other ways and had heard what happened in Jerusalem, or whether they'd been on the ship with Paul, Nobody spoke any harm. Nobody had anything bad to say about him because, well, quite frankly, he hadn't done anything wrong. But we desire to hear of you what you think. We haven't heard anything bad, but uh, clue us in here. What do you think? What are you talking about? For as concerning this sect, so they knew about the church but they didn't know much about it. What do you think? We know that everywhere it is spoken against. We haven't heard anything against you personally, but we've heard about this Christianity thing, and it's pretty evil spoken of. 
So, what's your opinion? What do you think? What do you have to say? And when they had appointed him a day, there came many to him into his lodging. So he didn't dive into it right there, but they had decided a day to meet. We'll we'll be here next Wednesday, whatever, and we'll spread the word around so that everybody that wants to come and hear what you think will have that opportunity. So they came where he was staying, to whom he expounded and testified the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus, both out of the law of Moses and out of the prophets, from morning till evening, all day sessions. We gripe and complain about a few three or four hour sermons in Big Sandy in the early days. Uh, But Paul had a proclivity to speak long at times too, you know. Kid kind of fell out of the balcony at midnight, and uh, Paul raised him up and went ahead and spoke till dawn. <laughs> so, <laughs> he was uh, he was loquacious, but he didn't back off. I think that's important to see, because these Jews had the same mentality the ones in, who had gotten him in trouble in the first place did. And he's talking about Jesus, the Son of God, and they didn't want to hear about that in the kingdom of God. So he just, he gave them the whole thing. And some believed the things which were spoken, and some believed not. That you could expect. And when they agreed not among themselves, they departed after that Paul had spoken one word. Well, spoke the Holy Spirit by Isaiah the prophet unto our fathers. Now here's what he quoted to them, and they departed after this. It says one word. He didn't just say hello. That wasn't the one word. Uh, but it was one short message from Isaiah. Go to this people and say, Hearing you shall hear and shall not understand, And seeing you shall see and not perceive. For the heart of this people is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes have they closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. That's a direct quote from Isaiah. And, of course, they looked to Moses and the prophets, And when he quoted this one from one of the prophets to them, they didn't like it a bit. God's word or not, they didn't like it a bit. Yeah, that's in God's word, but don't apply it to me. (laughs) You know? Be it known, therefore, to you that the salvation of God is sent unto the Gentiles and that they will hear it. Now, them's fighting words right there. I'm just telling you, you're blind and deaf and dumb and stupid. But the Gentiles are going to hear that, and they'll listen and hear. They'll get it. Now, they considered the Gentiles dogs. Don't even give them the crumbs off the table. So this was, to them... A very great affront. 
it was very offensive. And Paul offended them. (laughs) You know, we're not to give offense. But at the same time, you have to let the chips fall when it comes to God's Word. You call a spade a spade. And did Christ offend the money changers in the temple? You bet he did. So there is a time that righteous offense can occur because of God and because of God's Word, but personal offense we should be very, very careful to guard against. And there is definitely a difference there. Do you think this whole world is going to be offended when billions of them start dying and God sends the seven last plagues? That's going to be offensive to the whole world. And even before that, when the two witnesses start turning their water into blood and fire coming out of their mouths and killing anyone who would hurt them, uh, the populace will find that very offensive. And they're ultimately going to kill them. So there is a time to give godly offense. Just like God said, be you angry and sin not. Now most of us, when we get angry, figure our anger is justified. Yours isn't, but mine is, you know. That's the way that goes. Because we wouldn't be angry without a cause, would we? And it must be cause they did something or said something. Not us. So he tells us, on a personal level, be careful not to give or take offense. That is a Christian responsibility to fulfill both of those. On the other hand, if the Word of God offends, and it's time for the Word of God to be spoken, it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. You say what needs to be said. And if they take offense at the Word of God being delivered to them, then you're not offending them. God is. If you're using godly examples and godly wisdom, godly understanding, then they're being offended at God. And you're off the hook. But if you offend them on your own, then you have some talking to do with God. When he says, cry aloud and spare not and tell my people their sins... A lot of people are going to find that offensive when you do it, whenever whenever and wherever. That's okay. God said do it. And if you do, and you're telling their sins as they are, and they get offended, then that offense, again, is against God. It's not against the one who brings the message. Didn't a prophet or two say, well, please, don't kill the messenger, (laughs) Amos was an example. Hey, wait a minute. What are you on my back for? I'm I'm just a shepherd, and I pick sycamore fruit. My father wasn't a prophet, and I'm not a prophet. God just told me to come tell you this. Don't get offended at me. Don't stone me. I'm just doing what God told me to do. And they told him to shut up, and he didn't, because he was more concerned about what God had told him to do than he was about their reaction. So, 
Paul shoved it right in their face and said, you won't hear it, but the Gentiles will. And to them, that was about as great an offense as you could perpetrate. And when he had said these words, the Jews departed and had great reasoning among themselves. He stirred up a can of worms, in other words. And I imagine they were all babbling in a Jewish fashion uh, right after that, trying to figure out this Paul guy. We, they had him figured out now. They hadn't heard anything bad about him before, but now he told them the truth, and they didn't like it. And he didn't have to preach to some of them from morning to evening. He just had to give them one word out of Isaiah. Or, you know, two verses, but just a word. You know, when somebody comes up to you and says, can I have a word with you? They didn't mean one word. And I think you have to take, this isn't a contradiction. It was just a word of two verses and then he dealt with the aftermath, <laughs> the afterwrath. And they had great reasoning among themselves. And I doubt he got along with the Jews in Rome much after that. And I doubt if very many of them came to his meetings. And Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all that came in to him. So God had sent word ahead of time through some pretty horrible situations that Paul was a man of God. And he had a good reputation then, so people would come to him to hear. Well, that's what Paul, that's what God wanted was these people to hear the gospel. So he's the one that paved the way for that to happen by doing deliverance and healings. And all that received them came and preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no man forbidding him. So he had a good enough reputation in the city by now that he could go ahead and preach the gospel mostly to Gentiles and no one would say, stop that. He had pretty much already stopped the mouths of the Jews, hadn't he? And they went off babbling among themselves. So the Gentiles then essentially came, and he taught for two years. That's, you can get quite a bit done in two years uh, there in your rented house as people come in day by day to hear. Word would spread, more would come. So God had quite a witness there without radio and television, in Rome, before Paul eventually then was put to death. But God had called him as the leader of the Gentiles, or the, to be the primary one to take the message to the Gentiles, and here he was doing that. So uh, he was able to go all over that world and teach both Jew and Gentile, but it was primarily to the Gentiles that he had been sent. So anyway, it doesn't tell the rest of the story here, but stops there with this witness that came from God to the people in Rome. And then the story is picked up elsewhere about 
his preaching and his death. So that ends the book of Acts, and we'll go to something else, God willing, next Bible study.